All right, well, good morning. It's good to see you all here. Glad we're not snowed in. Amen. You know, one of the, that song reminded me that uh, one of the great struggles, really, of most of our lives, uh, at different times anyway, is to understand the goodness of God, especially in spite of and in light of all of the suffering, the hardships, the difficult things that come into our lives. And I think the place where we're at, uh, the book of Ezra, is one of the great stories that helps us understand some of those things. And, and, uh, and I hope it will help you. Uh, recently, in fact, I came across an excerpt of tennis legend Andre Agassi's memoir called Open. And there he tells about his own life story of playing tennis. You know, Agassi became one of the most iconic uh, tennis players in recent history and he tells that his life and, and career and if you will love of tennis actually came about as an imposed ambition of his father that is his father forced him and made him to play tennis and that led to a bitterness his father forcing, forcing him into this game and spending his life that way it caused an alienation between he and his father. Just before Agassi would play his last professional match in the 2006 U.S. Open, he recalls before going out that he was hobbling through, and I'm quoting, I'm hobbling through the lobby of the Four Seasons when a man steps out of the shadows and he grabs my arm. Quit, he says. What? It's my father. Pops, what are you talking about? Just quit. Go home. You did it. It's over. You know, that little story recalls a pivotal moment in Agassiz's long journey home, of going home, of reuniting with his father, finally getting the acceptance of his father and the son, accepting even the frailties of his own father. It's a son's coming home, no, no longer estranged and alienated from home and from his father, no longer relationally far away. And I think that that little story captures just a bit of maybe some of the things that we see in the book of Ezra. Maybe what it would have felt like for the people of Israel who have been by their own heavenly father forced from home to a land that they did not desire. But then we come in the story in Ezra chapters 1 and 2 to this pivotal moment of them maybe understanding more about their father and coming home. So today I want to examine with you some highlights from chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Ezra. Way too long for us to read together. Way too many names that I can't pronounce. All kinds of numbers. But I will tell you, it would be profitable for you to read these things on your own, even as I have done in the last couple of weeks. And I want us to organize our examination of just some excerpts from these chapters by the title of our sermon, which is The Long Journey Home. So, hey, right here on your bulletin, go ahead and make a correction to that. It's not the journey home, it's the long journey home. That's the four points we'll think about. The long, long journey and home. You know, um, with the snow coming on this week, Sheila was ready to get the bulletin printed, and she's like, okay, what's, what's the sermon this week? I said, ah, how about journey? Now, if we'd have stopped there, it'd have been a one-point sermon. And then I was like, ah, call it 
the journey, because we don't want you to think we're talking about the 80s rock group. Journey, I said, make it the journey. And then at some point, I said, no, 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 we need the journey home. And then Saturday, it became the long journey home. Aren't you thankful I ran out of days because we'd have had a lot of points today, but that's how we're going to organize because I'll tell you, this has been a labor for me uh, to get my head wrapped around this and everything that uh, was in my heart and felt like um, the Lord might have me to share with you today. So the long journey home. If you just underscore the word the in the long journey home, it would focus our attention on this particular journey. This particular scripture that we find ourselves in, in Ezra chapter 1 and chapter 2, this journey. You know, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, you might remember that this is a particular point in Israel's history. Now, uh, the northern tribes have been exiled, were carted off to Babylon for hundreds of years. The southern portion of Israel, now for about 50 some odd years, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed and it looks like really almost all hope is lost. Babylon, that empire that was led by Nebuchadnezzar, has now given way. And the ruler of the Persian Empire is the King Cyrus. And Cyrus, God stirs his heart. Remember we saw that early in chapter 1. Stirs his heart to let some of the people go back to, Jude, uh, to Jerusalem, to Israel. And he says, God has stirred my heart to rebuild that temple that was destroyed the temple there in Jerusalem. And not only that, let's look again at verses 5 through 7 just to kind of get our heads back in the, in the story. It says, Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even to everyone whose spirit God has stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with the articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables. Aside from all that was given a freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. So Cyrus is stirred up. The people are stirred. Many of the people stirred to give. Many of the people stirred to go and to rebuild the temple. You know, and, and so that's the story that we're considering in these days. It's this coming out of exile and back to rebuild the temple and to restore the people of God, the nation of Israel that had been laid waste. One of the interpretive challenges I think that we have as Bible readers, as teachers, as preachers, when we come to these stories, especially in the Old Testament, is to understand how do we appropriately apply them today. One thing is I think that we should just take some pains to understand the story, to know the stories of God, how he has worked in history, to know some facts. It's a good thing to know your Bible, to know these historical narratives. But I think we should also then try to move to application. And this is where we need to be careful and to be prayerful. As I told you before, I think that most uh, preachers, when they are getting geared up to do some kind of building project, you know, they're going to go to these books, especially Ezra, where they're rebuilding the temple. And so I want to go ahead and put some cards out on the table for you today, all right? Let me, let me put some preacher cards out on the table. You know, last year, 
we began having in, in different committees and with some of our folks and leaders in the church been, began having discussions that the fact is that some of our facilities here uh, that we meet in are probably in need of updating, remodeling, and repairing and some things like that. And so one of the things we asked the congregation to consider was hiring uh, an architect to come in to look at our facilities and to help us understand where we might do some um, integral or important updates of these facilities that we meet in. You know, and I feel like these things that we're talking about, and that's what we're doing, we're talking about, praying about, and planning about, I think that these things, they're good. They're good things to do. They're, they're even necessary if we're going to be good stewards of this place and what God has entrusted to us in this time be helpful for us in what we do here in the church. You know, and it would be very easy for me to talk, think about that and think, oh my gosh, you know, we've got to get people, you know, behind this thing and doing something. We don't even know what we're going to do yet, and we need them to give money, and we can go, and maybe we could rouse people up and stir them up using a passage like this. But I want to be very careful, actually. And I want to just say that. So I say all that to say this. I don't think that we should equate building the temple in this day with us building church facilities. Now, there might be some principles there. I think there are some things that we can learn and all of that about how God moves and, and, and all of that. But, you know, I don't think that's what the story is all about. It's just construction plans and how to do a capital building campaign. I don't think that is what is most important here. So I don't want us to equate building the temple in this historical moment with us doing some kind of project here at our church and yet, I will say this, I was listening to Christian radio as I was driving up one of the days this week, and uh, the, the DJ on that station, uh, a guy I actually know, he said, you know what, Christian churches, they're made up of, of people and members, and we're called a congregation. And you know one of the key things that congregations do? Anybody know? We congregate. Right. That means we get together. Now we're kind of getting into a weird place in history where talk about the metaverse and virtual, blah, 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 all that stuff. But I'm just going to say this. I still believe that congregations congregate. We're physical people and we get together and we need a place to get together. We could get together under a tree. We could get together in a lot of places. I don't know about if any of you have enough space in your home. For all of these people, any given Sunday, I was talking with some people who do uh, home groups. And they were talking about, you know, the more those home groups grow, especially with people uh, that have a lot of children, there are some real challenges. And I said, you know, that's one of the reasons churches have buildings and they have uh, Sunday school for different age-graded things so you can, don't have to worry about your kids running off to who knows where when you're not paying attention to them and all that kind of thing. But I say all that to say, congregations congregate and we have to have a place to congregate. And right now, in this time in history, and, and given all of the things, this is our place to congregate. And I think that our phys physical facilities are not unimportant. But I don't think they're the temple, all right, of, of the Old Testament and all of that. So I'm just kind of throwing that out there to you. So that is something we're talking about. But it would really be an injustice if we just looked at this passage and went through all of this and just made it about buildings, because actually this story, I would say to you, is about way more than a building. If God was so worked up about buildings, and, and specifically the temple, why did he cause it to be destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed, rebuilt again, destroyed? It's not about the buildings. The work of God, I think in all of history, is about the people of God. 
the people of God. And I think that we need to see the church in that way. In fact, one of the early uh, um, versions of this sermon was something like, we count people because people count. But I scrapped that one real quick. But, you know, I was just reading through here in Ezra chapter 2. And if you get your Bibles open, you can just glance at it. One of the things you gather real quick, you're just looking down through there, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172. And you go down there and there's number after number after number. They're, they're counting people. And they're putting in family groups. You know, it's not unimportant to count people because every person counts in the sight of God. And we should care about every individual and all the people. All right, but it's not about the numbers. It's not about the facilities and all that. But it's about the work of God among the distinctive, unique, called out people of God. So, the long journey home. And as we focus on thee and we underscore that, I just want us to say, let's, uh, though we will be talking more and more about some of the things that we want to do here with our church facilities, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to manipulate you into anything to do with buildings. Buildings have their place, but they are not the main thing. Amen? Okay, so we got that out there. Let's move on from the or the to, and we'll put these together, the long journey, but let's focus on the long journey. You've heard the quote, the journey of a thousand miles begins what? With a single step. And actually here we see in verse 5, one of the verses we read there in chapter 1, that the long journey home actually began before a single step was taken. It was with preparations. Preparations. There is the word. They prepared themselves to go. Everyone that God had stirred up, they prepared to go. All right. I wonder what their preparations consisted of. I want you to think about this for just a minute in this story. 50 plus years these folks have lived in Babylon. 50 plus years. You know how much junk you accumulate in 50 years? How many memories, friends, neighbors, connections, and how hard it would be even for the people of God to want to pick up and to move. Not only that, I've moved several times in my life. I counted it once and it's near 20, 20 different places. I forgot. I don't want to remember. Because I don't want to remember all the times of loading junk into U-Hauls and trailers and trucks. In fact, we just yesterday helped my daughter move up uh, um, to Springfield to an apartment up to the third floor. <laughs> Thank goodness for young guys who went along to do the heavy lifting. And we did this move. And I, moving is not cool. It's not fun. Oh, there's some fun of it. But I thought about how much junk and memories and how hard it can be. I can't imagine. I'm not even 50 years old yet. This long journey to uproot, to pick up and go. You think about that after you've accumulated 50 years or whatever and you've got all of these people and you've got all your stuff and you're about to go on this long journey. You're about to move forever. What would you do? What would the preparations consist of? I couldn't even think about it all. What, what would the preparations? You're saying goodbye to some people? You know, maybe they had yard sales. I don't know what they did. There's no rider trucks, no U-Hauls available. 
Not only that, they've got these 5,000 plus articles from the temple that they are responsible for that have been counted out and they're going to give an account. Somebody's got to carry that stuff, that old heavy gold and silver and all those different articles. This was no small venture. Think about this. Along the way, there would be no Casey's and come and goes. McDonald's and Brahms and Taco Bell. You know, the choices were not unlimited along the way. So I suspect... You would be hauling some food and supplies and firewood. I don't know. There'd be all kinds of things. Not to mention the logistics. Some of these families were huge. Right? Getting everybody who's going to go out front and take the arrow. If someone shoots at us, you know, who's going to be behind, bring up the rear. All of these things. Where are we going to get all of these donkeys? There's a bunch of them listed. Even They even counted the donkeys in, in chapter 2. All right, so there's all this stuff. And it would have taken meticulous preparations. But I don't think the stuff is the only preparations. And it doesn't say so, but here's what I know. As I read through the Bible, anytime God is doing a work and calling people to himself, to a new thing especially, you can think about Moses. And the burning bush. And this holy moment where he's called to take off his sandals. It's a purifying moment. You can think about Isaiah and that purifying moment. I know that God calls people to purify themselves as they draw close to him and be a part of his work. So I think that there would have been purification. Not just stuff and resources and logistics. It would have been a personal work of the heart to think about, oh my goodness. This is a huge thing that we're being called to do. And I need to prepare my heart and my soul and my life for being a part of this thing. And really, I think the long journey, actually the first step of it was, am I going to go? Am I going to do this thing? Because the undertaking is huge. The long journey home actually begins not with a single step, not even with the preparations, but a decision. That indeed, I want to be a part of what God is stirring up, what he is doing. I want to be a part of his people and his presence and his plan. And I would just ask you the question, have you made that decision? Have you nailed that thing down in your life that you want to be a part of God's people? Or are you happy in Babylon, the place of the world, with worldly things, being exiled in, excluded from the work of God in some ways. Have you ever made a decision? You know, people are saved. You come into the kingdom of God, the household of God, when you decide by faith and repentance of sin, turning from worldliness and turning and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you that in the New Testament here when we close. But, but there's a decision to be a part of that. But I have to say, folks, Joining God in his work is not a momentary decision, though it begins there. It's not just about an initial flourish of coming to the altar, coming to God and and, and getting our hearts right and, and purifying ourselves. It's not just about doing stuff and action. It's a long journey. It's a lifetime. These people were giving their lives to the work of God. Not just a flash in the pan, but a total surrender. That's what it is to be a part of what God is doing. Jesus called this counting the cost. 
If you want to be a part of what God is doing, before you do so hastily, say, yeah, I want to make that decision. I think we need to realize that he calls us, Christ calls us to lay down our lives and accept him as our master and Lord, to give ourselves, become a living sacrifice. It is a long journey. It is really giving him all of our lives. And so they were asked to give of themselves, to surrender. Maybe the plans that they had prior to this point. But God intervenes and he has a different plan. And he stirs their heart and he's doing something new. And he says, be a part. The long journey. And I just asked this question as I was preparing. I wonder how long the actual trip was. The actual journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. I found all kinds of numbers. The most trusted number I found was it was about a thousand miles. It was about a thousand mile walk with all of that stuff, all of these people and your donkeys. A thousand miles. It would take them about four months just to get to the start of where they needed to be. Man, that's grueling. I thought about journeys I'd been on. I couldn't help but think about long journeys and long trips to get to where I'm going. And I thought about uh, a 24-hour layover in the Amsterdam airport. I thought about how painful that was. I was trying to sleep in the airport and some masochist found the piano that night and was playing I thought that's soothing for a minute, but about the thousandth time, I was like, why have I gone on this trip? But I remembered it was a mission trip and we were going over to help some missionaries in Africa. There was a, a destination to help endure the long journey keeping the destination in mind, you know. But it was about more than just a four-month trip. That was just going to get them there. It was going to take decades. It would take decades to rebuild the temple, but really it was a lifelong journey. Let's think about the long journey home. Think for a minute about this particular journey. So now we're envisioning these, these exiled peoples of God who have been called out, and they're making this trip, this journey to this place where God would have them to come, to be a part of what God was doing. And there's some important things that I thought about as we just think about journeying home to God. The fact is, God was inviting them in to something way bigger than a building project. God was inviting them to be a part of a journey that is absolutely Amazing. Have you ever thought about the ages long story of the work of salvation that God is doing? Really that begins all the way back in the book of Genesis and it carries through all the way to the book of Revelation. There really actually folks is only one salvation story. One story. Now there's all kinds of twists and turns and entanglements. All kinds of things. But God has a thing he is doing. A salvation story. One. And he invites them to be a part of that epic saga of salvation. A purpose that would transcend their lives and times and generation. That's what he's invited us into. The salvation story. You know, when you come to Ezra chapter 2, let's look at verses 1 through 2. It really, it really, chapter 1's about the preparations all right, And then all of a sudden in chapter 2, it skips ahead and is looking back about those who came, who got there. 
And look at what it says. Now, these are the people of the province, so they're already there, who came up out of the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel. Let me just stop there. These came with Zerubbabel. Anybody ever heard that name before? Does that name sound familiar? I thought, well, I haven't known any Zerubbabels personally. All right? But, I, but I've come across one. Matthew chapter 1. In the genealogy of Jesus. If you go to, over to Matthew chapter 1 and you read the genealogy that's presented through um, Joseph's line of Jesus, the name Zerubbabel is there. And here's what it says about the genealogy of Jesus. Beginning with Abraham... When God first called out a people through this man, Abram, and promised them a land, a nation, to become a people, a numerous people, too numerous for anybody to count. And he gave a promise. From, and, and he said, you know, and from you will come the seed that will bless the entire world, all the nations. And there will be a throne that will be forever. That's a great promise to Abraham. But we read the story of Abraham and we know that he didn't experience the fulfillment of all of those things. In fact, there were 14 generations from Abraham to King David where this eternal throne and line would be set up. And you think, man, we've reached the zenith, the climax of this story. But no, there were 14 more generations then from King David to the exile, which puts us in this story, the Babylonian exile. So 14 generations, you get to David, 14 more generations. It almost looks like everything that God has done now has been undone. And we get to the exile. And it mentions, there's a guy in the genealogy of Jesus. His name is Jeconiah, the father of Shealtel. And then Shealtel is the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Great, great times whatever, 10, 12, great grandfather in the line of Jesus. Zerubbabel. These people come back to the land. I wonder what would happen if they would have said, you know what, too hard. Don't want to uproot. Don't want to do it. But they did it. They are a piece in the story. Twelve generations would go on before Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come into the very land that they are now going to resettle. God is doing something. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, and now generation after generation has passed since the time of Jesus. And let me tell you something. God is still doing something. He's still doing the same something. He's building his house and his people generation after generation. One of the things you got to grapple with in the Bible is how do I understand history and time and the story of salvation? You know, sometimes people say that history is circular. It just seems to keep on repeating itself and it just uh, round and round it goes where it stops. Nobody knows. You know, it never goes anywhere. What I would say, listen, think about, think about history, especially salvation history, as like a slinky or a spring. It starts down here. And it turns a generation. They have trials and temptations. They're invited into the work of God. Either they choose to be faithful or not. And then another generation comes. And they face over and over the same kinds of twists and turns of life. Trials and temptations. And it keeps on and keeps on. But listen. It's stacking on itself. And it's going somewhere. 
And we're invited into this spiral of the story of salvation, just like they were. Think about history and salvation history in that way. And think about this day and this place. And how First Baptist Church at Valley Springs has been invited into the story of God's salvation. Of calling out and creating for himself a people, a unique people. For his glory and for worship and to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us by his grace. We're not part today of a separate story. We're one more twist and turn in the slinky. That, listen, folks, doesn't go on forever. It's going somewhere. And there will be an end of the salvation story and a culmination when God brings everything finally to fruition that he has promised in Christ Jesus. You know, it's easy for us to kind of be disinterested. Are there any Jewish people here? Interesting question. Any Christian people here? In some ways, you're Jewish people if you're Christians. You know, the book of Romans says, now listen, I don't think we replace Israel, but the book of Romans talks about God's salvation history. And, and some people view the, the Gentile church and all that's doing God is doing apart from Israel as maybe a parenthesis or something extra or something additional. It's kind of an augment. No, 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 no. The book of Romans says that the Gentiles and the church are like a wild branch that's grafted into this olive tree. This one tree, which is the people of God. So we today are a part of this one story that these people were being invited into. We're further along in the slinky. We know more about what is going on. We understand Jesus. Some about him. That he's the savior and the fulfillment. He is the greater David. We understand that. All right, but it's a journey that we're invited into. The other thing about the journey I was thinking about is sometimes we view our Christian life and calling as individuals. It's about me. Well, certainly it's about you making a personal decision to follow Christ. But then not being a lone ranger. You're invited into a people. As these people made their trek back out of exile and into the land, they did so as parts of families. In a caravan if you will. They journeyed and migrated and went back together. And God wants that for us. That's what the church is. It's the called out, the assembly, the congregation. It's the caravan of the people who are coming from exile in the world, finally coming home together. It's dangerous to make a thousand mile journey by yourself. I told you all the story about me losing my credit card on a, on a journey. I, forgot my credit card the other day and uh, luckily I didn't run out of gas Isaac came and saved me I'm like bring me my credit card I gotta buy gas you know it's dangerous to try to go it alone how much more when we're thinking about a thousand mile journey how much more when we're thinking about a spiritual journey where there are spiritual enemies and ambushes along the way I tell you it is always safer in numbers and God has put us in a beautiful thing called the church to migrate and to journey together I truly know and believe that God intends for his people to be a part of a caravan, a local body of believers, a church. We're not making the journey alone, all right? We're his people. We need to band together and we travel together. I'll tell you what, in these days, uh, trying days, 
for a lot of people, for our nation. I can tell you that there's a lot of people in our church that are going through, and I've been talking some about this in, in our uh, little weekly email we send out this week. I was talking about just praying for people. That's one of the biggest things we're called to do is to pray for people, to lift them up spiritually, but also to walk alongside them together to encourage, to put courage into people by walking this thing together as we struggle together as the people of God. But it's not just long and it's not just a long journey. It's going somewhere. It's the long journey home. That little song we sang, I'm going home. We're going somewhere. This story is ultimately about a beautiful, I love this word, homecoming. Homecoming. They're going home to that special place and to the promise that God had given the people. It's about homecoming, the rebuilding of the temple, which represents being able to come into the very presence of God, coming into the presence of God, the Father, being reunited with the Father. It's about coming to a land that is inhabited by brothers and sisters. We're citizens there. It's a long journey home. Home's a good word. No longer, finally at that point, exiles and aliens and strangers. When you come home, you think about home should be a place of rest and security and belonging and love. Those are the things that mark a home. And these people are making the long journey home to their father who loves them and has called them to his side and into his presence with all of his people. Let me make some applications here for you today. This, this, again, this is a hard passage to, to preach about. I'm going to, next week, Lord willing, if I stay in this long journey, we'll be looking probably at chapter 3. We're going to skip right over so y'all can read all of the things about the numbers and people. But I really want to make some Christian applications because I said one of the difficult things about these Old Testament narrative passages is like how do we understand them as Christians? <laughs> I think that the book of 1 Peter is a book, especially the first couple of chapters, where he actually envisions Christians as in this story. That's what I think. And so he kind of allegorically understands the story, meaning he tries to apply it and take the contours of the story and some of the different moves and apply them to Christians. And he asks Christians to understand yourself right now, today, as being in this story. I mean, this was an epic thing in the life of, of Jews. And so Peter would have, would have thought of this story often. And as he's writing to the Christians, I think that he gives them this story as their identity and understand where you're at. And maybe it helps us to understand a little bit about the difficulties and the struggles and the dangers that we're in. And that God has not given up on us, that he's bringing us eventually home. So let me point out, if you've got your Bibles open, you can just flip there. I'll, I'll kind of run through this pretty quick. I want to show you where I get that from. First Peter chapter 1, he actually begins the, the letter this way, to those who reside as aliens, strangers, those scattered about, exiles, if you will, in the world. 
your strangers, wherever you find yourself, as a Christian, you will, you will feel, especially as the world embraces more and more ungodliness, and you stand up for Christian things, you will more and more feel like you are in a place of exile. You don't quite belong. And the people of God, the Christians of the early church, were feeling that. And Peter says, yes. In some ways, that is your story. You are, at this point, exiles, strangers, scattered about, but you are, he calls them, chosen of God. He says, you are chosen by God, just like Israel. Chosen in Christ. You're exiled. So he says, understand yourself in that way. If you skip ahead to verses 13 and 14, he says, but God's not going to leave you there. He has a journey for you. He's taking you somewhere. It's a long journey. And just like in, in uh, Ezra chapter 1, there in verse uh, uh, 5 through 7, talks about their preparations. Now in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14, he tells the Christians, now prepare yourself. You're in exile, but you're about to go on a journey. Actually, you've taken those steps. You've made that decision. You're on a journey. He says, here's how you prepare yourself for what you're going to encounter. Prepare your minds for action, for going home. Stay sober, he says. Fix your hope on the grace to come. Fix your hope on the homecoming. Understand that there are perils along the way. But get your homecoming in mind. And you will be able to endure the hardships of the journey. In verse 22, he gives another way to prepare yourselves. Prepare your hearts for love of the brethren. Man, look at the people that God has called you in this journey with. Put them in your heart. Open wide your heart. Let me just ask you to do this. Look around, look up. If y'all are up there, look down. Find a face. Find a na- think about a name of someone in this church. Maybe it's someone that's not even here today. You, you conspicuously notice their absence. You know, that no one's filling their spot where they normally sit. Put that person in your heart. Open wide your heart for the love of the brethren. We're in this thing together. So you prepare for the journey by realizing who belongs along this journey with us. And then we move over to chapter two. Prepare yourself for coming to God. Put aside, now listen to this, here's the purification. Put aside malice, evil, deceit, and hypocrisy. Purify yourselves. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation where I'm going to ask you, to, if that's what God is pressing on your heart, and even if it's not, let me just ask you this, have you done that? Have you been taking time in your life to purify yourself of things that are not befitting of a person who belongs to Jesus? Are there things going on in your mind and in your heart, in your relationships, that God would not be pleased with? That you would not be ready to expose before this body of believers actually says you need to to bring light and purify your hearts. Get rid of things that don't belong in your life. So put aside malice, meanness, anger, evil, deceit, Religious hypocrisy. And then it says this, coming to him, that is Jesus, who is the living stone. He is the cornerstone of the temple. When we get into the rebuilding of the temple in this story, there are actually foundations already there. The foundation of the church is Jesus. 
And the work begins really when we get there by coming to Jesus and recognizing that he is the linchpin. He is the cornerstone. He's been rejected by men, but he is precious in the sight of God. Come to him. Come to him. For the first time today, you may, may need to come to Jesus. If you want to be a part of what God is building, there is only one way, and it's to come to Jesus. And then we come to him over and over again. And he calls him the living stone, the cornerstone of the temple. All right? And then he says this, and you yourself are living stones. Being built into a spiritual house. So he gets a little bit out there for us and he says, think about yourselves, not as builders, but as building materials. As living stones. God wants you to occupy a beautiful, glorious position in what he is building. He has a place for you. It's not all about you and it's not all about me. But there is a place for us. And God is successively, row after row, stone after stone, building his spiritual house. So I began the message with that little thing of saying, you know, God is not primarily interested in temples. That was not totally true. He is interested in a spiritual house made of living stones. And you are the building materials. If you'll bring yourself to him and come to him. That's our identity, folks, is in this story. Exiles in this world, journeying home to be a part of the glorious thing that God is building. Would you bow with me today as we have a time of invitation? Often we just kind of rush through this thing. And... But I want to give you a chance to respond if you'd like to today. And just say this, first of all, being a part of what God is doing requires a decision, a personal decision to give your life to Christ, to come to Him and receive life. Have you done that? If you've never done that today, you need to turn to Jesus. You open your heart wide to Him. In your heart of hearts, you repent of your sins. You tell Him that you understand that you're a sinner. And by God's grace, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. But you want to be a part of what He's doing. And that you believe that He came and He died pay the penalty of your sins. That you believe that he died for you and that he rose again and that he ever lives to make intercession for you. And that he's coming again. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of a great king who is coming and bringing back his kingdom. Would you be a part? Tell him that you want to be a citizen in his eternal kingdom. Trust Christ today. Maybe for you today, you've already done that. But you're out there journeying alone. You're doing the Christian life as a lone ranger. You don't feel like you're a part of a family. Hey, I want to invite you to be a part of this family, this caravan of Christians journeying home. First Baptist Church of Valley Springs. In just a moment as we stand, I'm going to invite you to come. Or you can catch me after the service and let me know that you want to be a part of this church family and then finally as promised right where you sit if we would be obedient to what Peter writes that we want to be a part of what God is building we can't come with filthy hearts and filthy hands 
And this needs to become a part of our regular spiritual disciplines and day and journey. That is bringing our baggage and our sins before him. Knowing that he died to take those sins away, to bear them up to God, bring them before him, lay them down. This could be a long-standing thing in your life that you just can't get victory over. Bring it to him today. Lay it down right where you sit. If you want to move in this time, if you need to pray, if you want to come, I'll be here. We're just going to take a few moments to do business with God in this time of response. Father, today I pray for my own heart. And Lord, I ask that you would purify as you have promised to do, to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Lord, how can we, or how can I be a leader in your church apart from that? Apart from having your heart of love for the people and a heart for righteousness and purity. So Lord, we long for that. I long for that and I want to confess my own sins, sinfulness, and the things that happen in my own mind and heart, God, and just trusting that you would forgive me. And I ask that you would make me sensitive and make us all sensitive to the prompting of your spirit of things that need to be laid aside. God, help us to have our vision and our eyes set on you and what you're doing, things that matter, things that matter for eternity knowing that we were not redeemed by perishable things like silver and gold. It's not about buildings and things. We were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Help us to keep our eyes on Christ as Christians. And I pray for those who are alone and walking through life without brothers and sisters, without the comfort and the encouragement of a church. And I ask that you would place people in spiritual families that need that, as we all need it. Strengthen us, Lord. Help us in these days to follow your leadership, to surrender ourselves to your plan and what you're doing. God, I pray that you would build your church and your people in this magnificent story that continues even in our day. But we long to see great things that you will do through your people, through your spirit, and through your word. So help us as we strive to be a part and to sacrifice and surrender ourselves to that purpose. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.